Hello, and welcome to Stars, Cells, and God, the show where we discuss new discoveries taking place at the frontiers of science that have theological and philosophical implications, as well as new discoveries that point to the reality of God's existence. My name is Hugh Ross, and today I'll be your guide as we explore the topic of climate change, uh, whatever else we want to talk about for climate change and how to respond to it. Before we get into the discussion, though, I want to encourage you to subscribe to our YouTube channel, Reasons to Believe YouTube channel, so that you can be notified of our new weekly videos. Learn more at reasons.org or by following us on social media at rtb underscore official. Well, I'm joined today by one of our visiting scholars, and uh, Leslie, you've actually been volunteering for reasons to believe I can count at least two decades. Oh, I think that's I about mean, right. You joined us when you were just past your teenage years. Right, so, something like that. <laughs> right, something like that. <laughs> so uh, it's been a pleasure to have you back with us. It's been great and, to be uh, here. So, and you've got quite the resume. I'm just going to read a few of the things that you're famous for. Uh, Leslie Wickman received a master's degree in aeronautical and astronomical engineering, pardon me, aeronautical and astronautical engineering, and a PhD in human factors and biomechanics from Stanford University. She is an internationally respected research scientist, engineering consultant, author, and inspirational speaker. For more than a decade, she was an engineer for Lockheed Martin Missiles in Space, where she worked on NASA's Hubble Space Telescope and the International Space Station programs, receiving commendations from NASA for her contributions and being designated as Lockheed's corporate astronaut. Hence, you earned the nickname Rocket Girl. Right. Okay. <laughs> and you've actually been up in some of those things. So she has lectured around the world on satellite servicing, spaceflight physiology, astronaut training and operations, as well as various topics in astronomy, environmental stewardship, and the interface between science and theology. Some of her recent projects, Climate Change Impacts on National Security, we'll be dealing with that in other episodes, Assessment of Future Human Spaceflight Missions and Technologies, Human Factors Problems for Extreme Environments, and Fighter Pilot Proficiency Training, Sustainable Agriculture, and Water Reclamation. And hey, I just saw this, Pilot Fighter Pilot Proficiency Training. Yeah. I go to ask you, what did you think of uh, that uh, recent uh, movie? Uh, I'm embarrassed <laughs> to say that I haven't seen Top Gun yet. You haven't yet. seen Top Gun yet? Not yet. It's on the top of my list. It's on the I've top been, of your list. Okay. I've been very busy lately. Yeah, so. well, I actually talked to a fighter pilot, and he says some parts were on target and some were... The Sounds... G-forces were a little extreme in the movie. Apparently. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's Hollywood for you, That's right? That's Hollywood for you, yeah. They show these guys going through G-forces of 15. So. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't work out too well. Yeah. Well, I refer to you as a Renaissance woman because you're not just into science and engineering and technology. You're also into the arts. I mean, uh, if you ever go to Las Vegas and see the Bellagio Fountain, you had a hand in that. Yes, so. yeah, absolutely. And uh, when you were a little younger than you are now, you played professional football. I did indeed. So, all right. <laughs> so, if I missed anything? No, probably a few things <laughs> along the way. A few other things, but really, Renaissance woman, I think, describes you really well. Thank you. So, well, 
Uh, you want to talk to us about uh, you know climate change and how we can respond to it in a wise way. So yeah, take, yeah. I think for the most part, what I want to focus on uh, in this segment is uh, environmental stewardship and creation care, okay, and good. really, you know, I think so many audiences that I speak with are concerned about the environment, you know, especially Christian audiences, as we well should be. Um, and I've had a number of mentors over the years um, that have kind of increased my uh, concern for the environment. And, and it is a biblical imperative, it right? It is, absolutely. Yeah. In so fact, we're Christians. <laughs> that's right, exactly. It's, it's, so it's a topic that's near and dear to my heart. And I grew up in the Pacific Northwest. My dad was a forester. And uh, so we always lived in kind of remote areas where it rained a lot and the trees grew tall. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, in addition to that, I've had various um, experiences with uh, uh, mentors, including Cal DeWitt uh, from Calvin College, mm-hmm. um, Randy Van Dratt, who al- who's also at Calvin College. Um, yeah, I've met both those gentlemen. So. Have you? Yes, yes yeah. yeah. And so the, the, I've read their work. I've um, had a chance to meet them in person and, and just, you know, have a deeper understanding of our call by God to be stewards of his good creation. So this is something that I love talking about. And I think I think um, Christians across the country and probably around the world are really eager to learn more about what they can do to be good stewards. And so I think this is a really timely, timely issue. Mm-hmm. So when I start talking about uh, this topic of environmental stewardship, I'm taken back to Scripture first and foremost, and and these are very familiar scriptures. Genesis 1:31, God mm-hmm. saw all that He had made, and it was very good, um, or it was as it should be. Yes. Right? And uh, and then flashing forward into the the New Testament, uh, John 3:16, that says, "For God so loved the world." Mm-hmm. And as we know, that word world in the Greek was cosmos. Right. So referring to how God so loved the entire creation, everything that he'd created, mm-hmm. everything he created and called good. And so I feel like, you know, if we have this kind of as a model, you know, God calling his creation very good, then we ought to all the more respect it and care for it and pay heed to his call to be good stewards. Well, I mean, he may just back up one verse in Genesis chapter 1. He says, I'm putting you in charge. Exactly. Manage it for your benefit and the benefit of all other life. Yes. So it's not just us looking at exactly. ourselves. What can we do to benefit the rest of Earth's life? Exactly. Yeah. So it's a, a serious mandate for us, and and it, it does reflect God's care for the entire creation, not just humans, but all of all of life, all of the entire universe, you know. So, so what recommendations do you have for how we can do it better? Well, um, I actually, like I said, have taken some inspiration for a vari- from a variety of different people. This is another uh, individual at Arizona State University, William Johnson, mm-hmm. who um, uh, identifies a number of different environmental themes that are woven throughout Scripture. Uh, and so the first of those themes is creation that's by God, where God called it good, as we just mentioned. Uh, again, stewardship that we just talked about a bit, where God gives humans responsibility for that creation. Uh, next is the provision of God 
for humankind through his creation, uh, as in Genesis 1.29, uh, God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit uh, with seed in it, they will be yours for food. Um, the next theme is the pleasure of uh, God in his creation that we see not only in John 3.16 where we uh, read about his love for creation and uh, and sending Christ to uh, redeem it, uh, but also in Revelation 4, verse 11, that says, Worthy, O Master, yes, our God, take the glory, the honor, the power. You created it all. It was created because you wanted it. And I just, I love that, you know, that God taking pleasure in what he's created. Um, the next theme is praise. All of creation praises the creator as in Psalm 69, 34, that says, You heavens, praise him. Praise him, earth. Also ocean and all things that swim in it. Um, and then we've got the authority of God over his creation, um, the witness of nature to God's authority and provision, uh, consequences to creation, including humans, for, for mankind's wickedness. We see that in Revelation. Uh, and the perspective that God is above all of his creation. So a number of these themes, I think, are really important for us to... to I like uh, this one. <laughs> yeah, right. So, so I found this cartoon. It's, it's, I mean, we're going to have to describe it for our uh, listening audience. But the, the header of the slide says, Where your treasure is, there will, will your heart be also, from Matthew 6, 21. And the... Mm -hmm. Uh, the cartoon basically says, uh, the threat to which delicate balance will spur an era of energy conservation. On the left side, you see a picture of, of the earth. Mm -hmm. And on the right side, you see a guy looking at his checking account balance <laughs> and screaming because it's so low. <laughs> so, but this might be, uh, you know, true in some right, sense right. that as the price of fossil fuels go up these days, um, it will start to make think, people think more seriously about energy conservation. And, and you know, we should be uh, obviously concerned because of our mandate from God to care for creation. But with the rising prices, people are being forced to think a little bit more about energy conservation. Right. And I know that this is a, a topic that you're very interested right. in as well. So. Um, for me, <clears throat> one of the, the motivating themes or one of the motivating um, conversations is that our planet, it seems to be such a rare uh, planet. So far as we know in the cosmos, certainly in the solar system, um, but, you know, might be throughout the entire galaxy or even through the universe. We don't know. Um, we've certainly be begun searching and looking at some of these exoplanets around right. other stars. But as far as we know, our planet is the only one like it. And it, it has all these unique characteristics, the abundant water in all three physical phases that's so important for a life-giving water cycle. Well, and you're uh, saying we have to have ice, water vapor, and liquid. You exactly. Can't just have one. Yeah. That's exactly right. For the, the purifying cycle, for storage of the water reserve, and frozen ice, um, so yeah, it's it's all it all works together, right? And I mean, the water has got to be fine tuned in its quantity. I exactly. Mean, we've actually found two Earth-like planets that are water rich, mm -hmm. but they got 500 times as much water as the Earth. 
Wow. And without wow. much water, you get ice at the bottom of the water, which means there's no connection between the rock and the water. Yeah. So too much water is a problem. Right. And so we're seeing planets that are bone dry with no water at all or exactly. planets that are just way too abundant in water. Well, and it also talk, gets to the, the size of the planet. It has to be pretty darn close to what Earth's size is to give it the right gravity to hold on to water vapor at 18 grams per mole, but not methane and ammonia at 16 right. and 17 grams right. per mole. So that's right. that's tuning on a fine uh, line, right? So it has to be just the right size. And, you know, this this idea of the fine-tuning of the Earth, you know, is often called the Goldilocks principle, right? right? It's not too big, not too small, just right, or not too much, not too little, just right. And we see and that over and over you've got a few hundred again. of those, so it's not just one exactly. or two. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So for for me, the more I understand everything that, and we're still discovering more all the time, but the the more I understand the things that we have discovered that speak to the uniqueness of the Earth and the improbability of getting all of these characteristics right in just one planet um, seems so remote to happen just by random chance. And so the fact that we do have this place that is so perfectly uh, situated and uh, finely tuned to support life makes me all the more cognizant of God's command to take care of it. Kind of like what you see in Genesis 2, where God prepared this beautiful garden and he told Adam, take care of it. Exactly. And he prepared this incredible planet. He's basically saying, take care of it. It's the same exactly. principle. Exactly. The exact same principle. And so, you know, we, we hear talk of, you know, going to Mars and, you know, creating another Earth there or terraforming uh, Mars to be like Earth. And the reality is you know, Mars isn't a big enough planet to hold on to the right kind of atmosphere that we need, right? So, so again, for me, the space exploration that we do and the understanding of the planet that we have all motivate me all the more to take care of this good place that God has created for us. Very good. Yeah. So, you know, and and I think also I think of Romans 120 that you know the truth about God that can be seen in what he's created, right? So he, the truth about God is displayed in his creation. And when I first read that passage, I thought, well, yeah, we can, we can see God's uh, greatness, his power, his might, um, his control, um, you know, in his creation. But the more that I've studied that and the more that I've studied these characteristics of the earth that make it such a perfect place for us, I understand that it reflects more of his character than just his power and might. It also reflect, reflects his goodness and his love because he didn't create some place where we can just barely survive. We're not just some biology experiment. Yeah, you know, we, we, we thrive. Exactly. We don't just live. We flourish and thrive in this amazing place. It's We we have an abundance of what we need, and, and it's not like we're you know, struggling for every breath. And there's beauty, I mean. And there's beauty, exactly. Uh, you know, Psalm 97, the heavens declare the righteousness of God. Yeah. So it's not just his power and his might. Exactly, exactly. So I've, I've come to appreciate God's character as revealed in his creation so much more as I've studied it, and all the more as you 
um, grow that relationship and it's a loving relationship where you understand God's care and love for you, the more you want to obey his um, commands and, and certainly taking care of the earth is an important one. Okay, so what should we do? Well, let's let's keep pressing on here, okay. shall we? Yes. So, <laughs> big questions. Yeah. So we have some big questions, uh, such as big uh, the big question of who owns the earth and its resources. Um, you know, th- these are these are questions, as with all big questions, that thinking humans uh, typically come across some sometime in their life. Uh, and, and oftentimes, I think, encountering nature prompts these big questions, right? This, our um, reaction of awe and wonder at what God's created often prompts these big questions. And so who owns the earth and its resources is one, I think. Uh, what ought to be the role of humans on the earth and how can humans live on the earth sustainably? I think these are all... Uh, questions that we should be thinking about related to environmental stewardship and how we take care of our planet. Um, And I love this passage from Ecclesiastes, uh, chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. Um, The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place that streams come from, there they return again. And I just, I love this poetic description that actually is a really nice acknowledgement of all of the earth's systems, the air, the water, the land, and life upon it. You know, I mean, it's, it's just beautiful to see how... An incredible water cycle. Yes, exactly. And it, you see Job 37 and 38 talking about multiple forms of liquid precipitation, frozen precipitation, right. how they're all delicately balanced. Exactly. And we need every single one of them yeah. to have humans populating the planet. Exactly, exactly. And it's so beautiful to see these things reflected in Scripture that we see um, corroborated in, in the natural world. You know, I just, I, I love that synergy between the two books of God's revelation, you right. know, how he reveals himself both in scripture as well as his creation. So <clears throat> um, the, there are a number of environmental challenges that we're aware of um, to the, that are threats to the creation that God blessed and called good. Um, and this is just a partial list, and, and these are, you know, some things that we need to be thinking about and talking about and asking the question of how can we respond. So uh, the, the limited energy resources, uh, water pollution, water resources, uh, air pollution, uh, climate change, deforestation, loss of biodiversity, and obviously we're not going to have time to go into the details on all of these, but it is a it's a starting point for conversation, and um, you know I think one of the, the things that you're very interested in is, are the energy challenges. Um, and so if we look at the present rate of energy consumption, um, all of the Earth's fossil fuel energy, uh, much of it in the form of coal, will be consumed within about 250 to 270 years. And the U.S. oil production peaked three decades ago, probably actually more than that, maybe 35 years or so. Um, and global oil production is expected to peak if very soon, if it hasn't already. 
Uh, and the bottom line really is that fossil fuels aren't going to last forever. Uh, never mind the the uh, release of greenhouse gases sure. and the impact on our environment and climate. So, Well, you're a lot younger than I am, but in the days of Lyndon B. Johnson, he talked about the affluent society. Mm-hmm. And really, we're dealing with an effluent society. <laughs> That's a good <laughs> point. That's a really good point, actually. Yeah, so, um, <clears throat> you know, we need to be looking at uh, sustainable energy sources. I know that you're going to be talking about some of those uh, either later in this segment or in another segment soon. But things like solar and wind and geothermal, hydroelectric, um, possibly even nuclear technology, was which is extremely efficient uh, and unfortunately has gotten a bad rap through the years. But um, I think there's a lot of promise in some of these um, areas. Um, but especially if current energy uh, use continues or rates of consumption continue, um, we really need to be focusing on more sustainable long-term energy sources. And of course, there is a growing demand across the world for safe and clean water as populations grow and uh, and also the um, greater awareness of waterborne diseases uh, that are spread through the use of contaminated water uh, and wash water. Uh, so 18% of the world's population has inadequate water and 40% lack sanitation treatment to maintain even the most basic health standards. Uh, and in developing countries, 80% of sickness is directly attributable to water-related diseases that we in the West take, you know, take for granted as being easily preventable. So water is one of the biggest issues uh, that I see. And again, you know, our earth is so uh, finely tuned in such a beautiful pr provision of the right amount of water and the, you know, just all these different characteristics that we've mentioned before. Um, but yeah, water's obviously a, a huge challenge worldwide. Um, yeah, even where we are here in Southern California. Yeah, and the drought that the, really the whole West Coast is going through, and I'm sure there are other places as well. I mean, you know, you, we hear and read about drought in uh, other areas of the world. And, you know, yeah, it's a very, very difficult problem. Um, so if we then move on to air issues, you know, we look at the, the earth from space and we, we see this, you know, it's been called the thin blue line of Earth's atmosphere, which is, you know, small uh, next to the, the planet itself, but it's absolutely essential for our existence and for our health. Um, but the quantity of pollutants that we're, as you referred to, an effluent society and we're pumping into the atmosphere, uh, it's now significant enough to cause real contamination, especially in some areas. Um, it leads to air pollution as well as acid rain and um, acid. respiratory conditions. Exactly, exactly. And this is kind of an interesting uh, aside. You know, I, a number of years ago, I went to a, a climate on, or climate, a conference on climate intervention possibilities. And one of the main things that was talked about was to um, uh, replicate the effects of volcanoes in uh, cooling the earth and uh, the ejection of sulfur dioxide that volcanoes do. And so the 
one of the biggest, most widely um, uh, promoted ideas to cool the planet was to take these jet load, jet uh, plane load fulls full of uh, sulfur dioxide into the stratosphere and on a regular basis inject sulfur dioxide into the stratosphere. And I'm thinking to myself, well, sulfur dioxide causes acid rain, (laughs) you know, and respiratory distress in humans and animals and all these other effects. And I thought, really? That's the best you guys have, have thought of, you know? And it was just shocking to me, but it was just it was it was looking at the effects of um, of uh, temperatures after significant volcano volcano eruptions. Well, I mean, they're even talking about putting rockets in space, which would create a, a shield between us and the sun. Right. But, but all these things, you got to worry. I mean, they're not reversible. Well, yeah, and, <laughs> and, and what if you get it too cold? <laughs> and never mind, yeah, and never mind the the um, the amount of fossil fuel energy that has to be expended to launch to all this there, stuff. Right? Yeah. And I mean, with the the idea with the sulfur dioxide, it was like, you know, uh, somewhere on the order of like ten ten jet loads per day into the stratosphere on an ongoing basis, and I'm like. <laughs> there's got to be a better better solution and you know we've talked about before how complex climate is and how how difficult it is to make accurate predictions about the future and whatnot and and i mean for me i come back to our mandate from god to be good stewards and to do what we know you know why why would it be a good thing to pollute the air? Well, it's obviously not. Why would it be a good thing to pollute? Well, I think the thing you're addressing, Leslie, is unintended consequences. Right. They're thinking through, hey, this is going to block out some of the sunlight. Yeah. But what are the implications exactly. of doing that? What are the long-term implications? Yeah. Is the cure worse than the problem? And do you have a rheostat? What if you put too much or too little? Do you exactly. have a way of controlling it? Exactly. And most of these suggestions, there's no control. There's no rheostat. Yes, exactly. So. That's exactly right. And so I keep, like I say, coming back to our responsibility to do what we know to take good care. And, you know, I mean, some of these things are fairly basic. You know, let's do what we can not to pollute the air. Let's do what we can not to pollute the water. Um, let's do what we can to be um, careful consumers. Um, let's do what we can to... Um, uh, reduce, reuse, recycle. Um, you know, let's not be gluttonous uh, consumers of anything. You know, um, you know, let's be, let's follow Christ's example. Let's follow the uh, commandments in Scripture, and do what we know uh, to be good stewards, and be careful about the things that we don't understand the unintended consequences for. So, I mean, those are kind of the, the things that I, I come back to in this whole discussion. Um, I have a whole bunch more slides that we could go through, but I kind of would like to have a little bit more of a, just a back and well, forth. Well, let's take a break first. Uh, have you ever stopped to wonder who God is? Have you ever wondered the nature of his character? The Bible tells us that God is faithful, holy, and gracious, that he is, in fact, the very definition of love. But how can we know this for certain? Psalm 19 says the heavens declare the glory of God. But what do the heavens reveal about God's character? If you ever ask questions like this, we invite you to join us at our God Is Conference. 
where you'll explore how God has revealed himself through the work of what he's created and through his word. Our hope is that the conference will bring you to a deeper understanding of who God is. Visit reasons.org God is to learn more. Well, Leslie, I've got a few suggestions. Some of this comes out of my book, Weathering Climate Change, mm-hmm. other stuff that's actually new that's not in the book. And just appreciate your feedback. And if you've got other suggestions, uh, feel free to uh, weigh in. Great. Uh, but this first slide here shows you the Sahara Desert. And look all over this slide. You can't see a single green thing. I mean, it's bone dry. Right. And uh, this particular map actually shows you the extent of the Sahara Desert. It's actually bigger than the entire continent of Australia. And uh, a few years ago, they actually measured the rate at which Mm. the Sahara Desert was growing. It was advancing south by six miles per year. Wow. And what was causing that advance was people living on the south edge of the Sahara Desert, uh, desperate for cooking fuel, and so they were harvesting what little shrubs and grasses they could find and using it for cooking and heating wow. fuel. And so one of the things I've been advocating is that, you know, you got within the green movement, let's ban the use of all fossil fuels. I'm saying, well, maybe there's a wiser way we can use fossil fuels rather than banning them outright. So one radical idea I suggested was, why don't we go to the peoples living on the south edge of the Sahara Desert and basically say, hey, we understand you need cooking fuel, mm-hmm. you need heating uh, when it's cold at night. How about if we give you all the kerosene you want for free on the condition you work with us to replant the Sahara Desert? Wow. And 2,000 years ago, the Sahara Desert was only 10% the size as it is wow. today. Wow. I mean, if you read Roman history, uh, what we call the Sahara Desert was a breadbasket for Europe. That's mm. where they grew all their grain. Wow. And, uh, you know, the Israelis have shown us how we can replant the desert as kind of a step-by-step approach where you begin to plant plants far apart. It start causes transpiration, which mm-hmm. increases the rainfall. Mm-hmm. Then you can plant with greater density. And literally within a single generation, uh, you can replant a desert. Amazing. Now, we're not going to take it back to zero, but we will be able to take it back to the way it was in the days of the Roman Empire. Yeah which now means what is the Sahara Desert, uh, will be covered with wheat fields. Wow. And uh, that's going to provide an income for Mm -hmm. all the North African people. The wildlife will return because the wildlife has basically left the Sahara Desert region, uh, with the exception of a couple of scorpions. Right. (laughs) (laughs) uh, But the whole point is uh, all that uh, new vegetation will soak up huge quantities of greenhouse right, gases, yeah. provides an income from those people. Yeah. So it's one example of how we could use the fossil fuels we have in a way that actually helps alleviate uh, climate change, restore climate stability. Yeah, you, what you're talking about reminds me very much of um, some of the deforestation that's taking place in South America where uh, the locals that need fuel... Uh, or income or a variety of different things uh, are are, uh, essentially cutting down the rainforest. Right. And oftentimes they're using the wood from the rainforest just for charcoal to sell the charcoal for some income, which just seems like such an inefficient use of that beautiful wood. It is. Um, But similar problems, right? I mean, they're, they're motivated because they need 
They need fuel. They need income. Well, they're also looking for income. So they say, hey, if we cut down the forest and transform it into pasture land, we can raise beef cattle and we can make a lot of money. Right, exactly. So that's another example of unintended consequences. Yeah. The Amazon forest. Yes, this is actually a shot of the Amazon forest. Beautiful. Uh, the healthy part mm-hmm. of the Amazon forest. And uh, today, uh, it measures to be five and a half million square kilometers. It's over half of Earth's rainforest. Mm-hmm. However, if we keep cutting down trees and turning into pasture land, number one, the Amazon soil is nutrient poor. Mm-hmm. And so when you do convert it to pasture land, you've got maybe only a decade. Hmm. After wow. that, you can't raise beef cattle anymore. And actually, you can go through the Amazon and see places where they've cut down the trees, created pasture land. Ten years have gone by. Guess what? It's a desert. Yeah. One right. of the rainiest places in the world right. has been transformed in just one decade right. into these local deserts. Yeah. And this is what they mean by the tipping point. Mm-hmm. If you continue to cut down trees in the Amazon, you reach a point where the forest can no longer produce the rainfall, it sustains itself. Because right, right. trees transpire water. Right, exactly. And so that's where a lot of the rain yes, exactly. of the Amazon comes from. Yeah. And uh, in 1970, there was 4.1 million square kilometers. 2019, just 3.3, a 20% loss wow. in literally uh, just 50 years. Yeah. And there again uh, is a huge source of uh, converting CO2 into O2. Right. Um, you know, the Amazon and other rainforests have been called the, the lungs of the planet, so to speak. Obviously, the effect is the And, opposite, you know, they're looking at pasture land and saying, hey, we can make money. And so one of the things I've been suggesting is let's show them a way where they can make even more money than this temporary thing of mm-hmm. cutting down trees and making pasture land. And you grew up in the Pacific Northwest. Yes. I did, I did too. Right. Uh, and that this is actually a, a photo I took. Uh-huh. Of, uh huh. Very familiar. <laughs> very familiar. This was just six miles from the house that I was raised in in Vancouver. I would cross the bridge to North Vancouver, and I loved this park. Yeah. But when you look at this uh, shot and uh, this one as well, what you see is a lot of old dead wood. Mm-hmm. And uh, the problem with letting big trees grow old and dying, when they die, they release greenhouse gases right. in the atmosphere. Right. And so like with the Amazon, the Pacific Northwest, in fact, I would even say this is true of our national parks. Mm-hmm. We need to let the lumbering companies come in and harvest yeah. these old big trees yes. that are in danger of dying. Yeah. Number one, they make a lot of money on those big trees because, mm-hmm. you know, you've got this big, thick tree. Yeah. And if we can harvest it at the right time, this now becomes sequestered carbon yes. in the form of houses and furniture. Exactly, yeah. But the key is you don't clear cut. Right, exactly. You selectively Absolutely. take out yes. the most valuable trees, yeah. and not all of them, because yeah. there's wildlife that needs a few big old trees. Right. So you select right. out some, then replace them by planting young trees. Yeah. And it's well established in the scientific literature that uh, these young trees will grow up to four times faster than the big old trees, yeah. which means they're pulling four times as much greenhouse gas right, into exactly. the atmosphere. Yeah, yeah. And it's easy to achieve a doubling factor, yeah. you know, where you've got a wide spectrum of yeah. trees of different ages. Yeah. And I, I think the tourists in our national parks would like it, because I don't know about you, I've been to some of the U.S. national parks, 
and a third of the trees are dead. Yeah, no, you're right. And I think I mentioned my, my dad was a forester. Right. And preached for a very long time about good forest management. And this right. is exactly the type of yeah, thing. Don't clear cut. Exactly. Take out the valuable trees. Exactly. Replant with young, fast-growing trees. Yeah. And don't make the trees too dense. Yeah, If exactly. they're too dense, the bark beetles will come in and kill all the trees. Mm-hmm. And so, and you know, if you take good forest management, number one, Tourists love seeing green forests. Yes. <laughs> they don't like seeing dead forests. Exactly, or clear-cut areas. <laughs> or clear-cut areas. And the wildlife loves it. Yeah. So the wildlife benefits, the tourists benefit, the lumber companies mm-hmm. make money, and you're pulling like, way more greenhouse yeah. gases yeah. out of the atmosphere. Yeah. Now, I would recommend to the lumbering companies, go in in the wintertime when the tourists aren't there. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so. Good point. Uh yeah, no, that's really, really good stuff. I and you talked about fossil fuels. I mean, you mentioned coal. And, uh, and coal the s- produces these soot. sulfur aerosols. Yeah. It produces black carbon yeah, soot. Yeah. And basically, it releases carbon dioxide. Yeah. Uh, one fossil fuel, uh, methane, what we call natural gas, mm-hmm. when you burn it, you're making carbon dioxide and water. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you know, water is a greenhouse gas, but if you got too much in the atmosphere, it falls as rain and snow. Right. So no matter how much water you put in the atmosphere, it's going to stabilize. Right, yeah. So uh, you know, burning fossil fuels to produce water is not an issue. Burning fossil fuels to produce carbon dioxide is an issue. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, if we were to take all the coal out of energy consumption and mm-hmm. replace it with natural gas. Yeah. Number one, the natural gas is cheaper. Mm-hmm. It's cheaper than the coal. It's easier to transport. Mm-hmm. We got a lot more natural gas than we got coal. You mentioned we will run out of coal if we keep depending on it. But there's huge stores of natural gas mm-hmm. in the Earth's crust. And if you replace coal with natural gas, you get an immediate 50% reduction in greenhouse gases. Awesome. Yeah. I mean, people have been talking about wind and solar mm-hmm. and nuclear. You can't get a 50% reduction hmm. without waiting a long, long time. Mm-hmm. So rather than banning all fossil fuels, say, let's get rid of coal, mm-hmm. replace it with natural gas, we get an immediate 50% drop mm-hmm. in uh, the greenhouse gases, yeah. and we get no black carbon soot, Right. we get no aerosols, People in New Delhi won't be choking all the time right. from the air pollution. Yeah. And moreover, places like Canada and Siberia would really benefit. Yes. Because climate models tell yes. us all that coal-burning black carbon soot, changes the it doesn't get dumped on China and India. Yeah. It gets dumped on Canada and yeah. Siberia. Yeah. And it, the changing the ice pack from white to, to black Means it increases more the solar heat. radiation. It Ex- does. Yeah. And well, Canada, for example, especially northern Canada, yeah. it's warming up five times faster yes. than the rest of the world. In, yeah. It's not carbon dioxide that's doing it. It's that black carbon Exactly. Set. In fact, that's that's really the area that I've focused on, and we're kind of getting our ahead of ourselves okay, to good. the the program that we're going to be doing uh, on natural on security. Studies, exactly. Yeah. And and <clears throat> so my my focus has been on the Arctic, really, because mm-hmm. of the the. The, the rapidity of losing ice, um, the, uh, the opening of new sea lanes in that area, and one of the big things is the amount of uh, carbon soot that's falling on the ice that changes the color from white to black and therefore absor- absorbs more solar radiation and 
it's a vicious cycle with you know increasing the rate of the melting of the ice and and so yeah so that's a yeah, if you got big more issue. ships passing through there that you're going to have even exacerbates more exacerbates the problem that's right. exactly right yeah so we'll save some of the other we'll national some security stuff but well, let me throw this one out at you yeah. too because I'm looking at replacing coal with natural gas you get an immediate reduction of 50 percent what's it going to take to get it down to zero because I think that's the ultimate goal everybody has. Mm-hmm. But getting an immediate 50% payoff, I mean, nothing else we have yeah. delivers that kind of bang for a buck that yeah. quickly. Yeah, no, that's that's very significant. It's very significant. And if we go to natural gas, replacing all coal, that could buy us a time Yes. to find something that really doesn't depend on fossil fuels. Yeah. Yeah. And one thing I've been attracted to is uh, thorium nuclear reactors. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is a thorium nuclear reactor uh, that was constructed in 1960 on mm. the Hudson River. Oh. And uh, it works. It produced energy. Uh, it was never exploited, however. Nobody, everybody lost interest in it because you can't use it to make nuclear weapons. Oh, interesting. <laughs> but today that's considered right. a plus. Exactly. That we could actually have all these uh, new nuclear reactors right. that you can't make uh, weapons out of. Yeah. Which means you don't have to worry about some terrorist or right. rogue nation. Getting hold of the fuel, yeah. And uh, so that's the Indian Point Energy Center in New York, uh, built in 1962. So, uh, and there's actually two of these built, uh, but it was never scaled up. Hmm. Now, what's interesting about thorium, it's three times as abundant in the crust of the earth as uranium. And uh, one ton gives you the energy equivalent of 200 tons of uranium. So it's 200 times more efficient than uranium. Or it's the equivalent of 3.5 million tons of coal. Right. So a little bit of thorium, you get a lot of energy. that's, I mean, across the board with nuclear, but I was not aware of the um, the abundance of thorium. That's very it's interesting. It's hugely abundant. The U.S. has enough to produce 100% of our total power needs for over 1,000 years. Wow. You know, people are concerned about nuclear because they're thinking about the radioactive waste. Right. What's interesting about thorium, you get 1,000 times less radioactive Is waste. Is that right? It's completely safe to handle after 200 years, and I think there's technology that could actually make it safe after 50 years. Wow. So it has a, a shorter half-life then? Than well, it's a breeder reactor we're okay. talking about. Okay, You're gotcha. using the thorium-232 okay. to make uranium-233. Okay, gotcha. But uranium-233 has a short half-life. Okay. So it produces a lot of heat, and then it's gone. Okay. And, but that's an advantage, to have it gone quickly. That's why you get a yeah, thousand ab- times absolutely. less radioactive waste. Wow. Unlike uranium, where you got to store it for 50,000 years. Right, exactly. Which is a bit of a logistical <laughs> exactly, nightmare. Exactly, <laughs> right? When, Here we're uh, looking at something that's realistic, 50 to 200 years. Right. And what about the... Are, is thorium being used in any of the European plants? Thorium is not being used for energy generation right now okay. anywhere in the world. Okay. But there are five nations that are seriously considering it. Great. Australia, India, Canada... Israel, and the United States. Great. But I'm suggesting they need to be a lot more serious about this and gear up. And part of it, I think, is we need to educate the public. Absolutely. This is not like uranium. It's a completely different animal. And so, for example, it's safer and more efficient to mine. You can open, you can, uh, you know, take it right off the top of the earth. 
so you can strip mine it, which is cheap. And uh, the people mining it don't have to wear special suits. The other big advantage is it's actually impossible to have a meltdown at a thorium reactor. Wow. No meltdown can happen. See, because I think a lot of people react to the, the problems that have occurred at Three Mile Island. Chernobyl. And Chernobyl, and, et cetera, right? right? And so if, if there's not uh, as big a risk for meltdown, then that should there's be There's actually huge... a zero risk for meltdown and a zero possibility. Well, it's not actually zero. You can make nuclear weapons uh, with thorium nuclear reactors, but everybody involved will die. <laughs> So that pretty well <laughs> stops people from trying. Should be a, a demotivator. <laughs> That's a demotivator. That's why they say practically it's impossible right. to use it to make weapons. Uh, and you don't have to have special gear for the power plant workers. Wow. They don't have to be tested all the time. And uh, I'm convinced that within 10 years, we could have enough thorium nuclear reactors in the world to basically say we don't need fossil fuels. We don't even need water power. This potentially could deliver electricity for less than half the price of water power, it's, which today ranks yeah. as the cheapest source of yeah. energy. Well, so and, and you wouldn't I, have to put dams on rivers yeah. anymore. And I, I just I think that you know, like you said, the public needs to be educated, um, not only on on safety issues, but also just the incredible efficiency of nuclear. You know, it's the whole E equals M C squared, right? It's this right. huge amount of energy that you get from a very tiny amount of mass. Well, I think the engineering here is a big advantage. I mean, mm -hmm. I remember when I was a student in physics, they were saying hey, we're learning so much about plasma physics, we're going to have controlled nuclear fusion by the end of the century. Well, I mean, here we are 22 <laughs> right, years exactly. after this, and we're no farther along than exactly. we were back in the 1960s. That's exactly right. So making a magnetic bottle that uh, can stabilize yeah. uh, a fusion reaction is not an easy thing. No, absolutely not. In fact, if you look at the sun, it's not magnetic. It's all gravity. Right, right, so, yeah, exactly. we got yeah. something as big as the sun, maybe. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but here's something that we know works. Yeah. That's fantastic. And the real challenge now is, and I think this is what's happening in the five nations that are involved in this, is the best way to make millions of uh, thorium nuclear reactors that are small, or are we better off making a few really big uh, thorium nuclear uh -huh. Where is the cost rate the best? Right. You know, we could mass produce a bunch of small ones or make uh, some big ones. Right. That's the unsolved problem. Okay. That's why I'm saying a decade, we should be there. Yeah. And so... Uh, natural gas can buy us that decade mm -hmm, mm -hmm. with an immediate, uh, you know, drop in neat greenhouse gases. As a matter of fact, the water we release could be a real help too. Yeah. So we'll yeah. see. Yeah. Um, and then you know, gear up for thorium, and uh, now we almost all produce energy at a ridiculously low price. Yeah, that's fantastic. Everybody's going to love it, and moreover, the electricity will be stable. Yeah. It's yeah. not like solar where, hey, the sun's not shining right, exactly. or it's pouring rain. we right. got a problem. Yes. Uh, we know this thorium will keep going. Yeah. And, you know, it, bringing up solar and some of the other, um, uh, quote, unquote, green, green sources of energy or sustainable sources of energy um, are all fraught with their environmental issues. I mean, they are. The, uh, you know, we've talked uh, in 
Southern California about these big solar farms. And of course, there are all kinds of concerns about disrupting habitats and, you know, similarly for yeah, wind power. You're not going to grow stuff underneath the panels. Right. <laughs> and, and then, and also, it, you know, a big thing in Southern California is the uh, disruption of the habitat of the desert tortoise as well. Right. right? And so, so with uh, nuclear, again, the efficiency uh, coupled with the the safety that you gain with thorium, and you it, don't need a lot of land, yeah, uh, to exactly. make these reactors. It's not like uh, solar and wind, where you're basically taking out a huge, lot of that huge acreage, a exactly. huge acreage, right? Yeah. yeah, I mean, I even saw that in Hawaii, where they had this incredibly rich farmland, mm. and they covered it with solar panels. Wow! And so nothing's growing there anymore. Yeah. It impacts the wildlife. Absolutely. And then you've got the problem. You've got to recycle those panels. Yeah. I mean, we live in California. Our state basically forced us to put solar panels on the roof by jacking up the price of electricity. Right. So we got solar panels on our roof. But I know in about uh, 18 years, they're going to be replaced. Mm-hmm. And I don't think anybody's thought through the recycling right. of those millions and millions of solar panels. Yeah. What are you going to do with that? Exactly. Or the fact that windmills kill birds. Exactly. So, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So unintended consequences. Exactly. Exactly. That's a real theme in looking at some of these so-called solutions. So, yeah. Very so do fun. you have any other ideas you'd like to share with us? Well, I, I think one of the things, and we've touched on this already, is just having conversations with people and raising awareness and, you know, again, like we're doing right now, just talking about our, our personal responsibility, uh, the fact that Earth is rare, as far as we know, certainly in our, our solar system and probably far beyond. Uh, and it's a gift. And we need to You're take care of it. You're suggesting we should take care of the Earth because there's nowhere else to go? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I mean, these ideas about, you know, terraforming Mars or even colonizing Mars or the moon and whatnot, it, Again, the planetary considerations are, are not... Well, I read an article where they said we can terraform Mars for only $100 quadrillion. <laughs> and so. even at that, I, I would dispute it just because of the fact that the gravity's not right. Well, they do say that they could make it habitable for 50 years, but after the 50 years, you've got to spend another $100 quadrillion. <laughs> So I think we've got a sustainability problem here. There's a real sustainability (laughs) issue. And, you know, so, again, our, I think, um, our responsibility to take good care of the earth for for the fact that God created it and called it good, as well as to provide for future generations and loving our neighbors. Um, But I think we need to have those conversations more regularly and even about possible solutions, talking about, what does it mean to have that responsibility? Um, what should I be doing? I mean, I remember in one of my classes at one point, you know, talking about environmental stewardship and some of the issues that we're facing. And um, one of the students wrote in a reflection paper, it's not about what, uh, what difference can I make? I'm only one person. You shouldn't be asking that question. Instead, you should be asking, what is my moral responsibility? What ought I to be doing? And so even if as one person you don't feel like you can make a big difference, if all of us take that responsibility on and ask the question, what ought I to do, then together we can make a big difference. And, and if you can give people an economic incentive, I mean, yeah. all these suggestions I've been making is that 
people have more money in their pockets if they do this. Exactly. And, and people are selfish. They're exactly. going to do what's going to help them. <laughs> exactly. So if we can give them an economic incentive, yeah. I think we can actually solve these problems fast enough. I mean, next month I'm going to be involved in a debate with uh, climate change experts. And the people I'll be debating are what I would call alarmists. Mm, okay. They're basically saying, hey, you know, this is a real crisis. And my message is it's a bigger crisis than what you realize. This really is a huge crisis. But trying to terrify people to accepting tax penalties and uh, reducing their economic well-being, uh, that's going to be a hard sell. Mm -hmm. If we give them a strong enough e economic incentive, they'll do it right away. Yeah. And we yeah. need to do it right away. You're right. This really is a problem. We need immediate action. Yeah. But you're not going to get immediate action if you can't give yeah. people an economic incentive. You're absolutely right. And that's that's why capitalism works is because people are at their basic you know, common denominator selfish. Well, there's another <laughs> biblical principle. I mean, you talked about what Genesis was saying, mm -hmm. how we're stewards of planet Earth to manage it for our benefit and the benefit of all their life. Yes. That implies that God has solutions for us that are going to be win-win. Yeah. We won't have to choose between what's good for us mm -hmm, and, and what's good for the rest of right. our life. Yeah. That statement in the Bible tells us if you look hard enough, you will find win-win solutions. Right. That's a really good point. For so the let's benefit. look for them. <laughs> exactly. Couldn't agree with you more. And I, you know, we just talked about a few. I'm sure there's many more we could look at. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. But yes, I think it's it's very, very important for, for us to have these conversations with people to raise awareness and to educate people as to not only what the problems are, but what some of the solutions are. Well, you're on the front lines of being a professor in science of Biola University, and God's given you a lot of platforms. So uh, we're all encouraged by what you do. We'll be praying for you. Thank you. That you'll get the message out. Thank you. I'm all right. praying for you as well. Thank you. Well, thank you for joining us today on Stars, Cells, and God. Join the discussion in the comments below. Remember to like this video and to subscribe for more content. New episodes of Stars, Cells, and God release each Thursday and are available here on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. Be sure to share this video with a friend, and remember, the more we know about science, the more reasons we have to believe in Jesus Christ as Creator, Lord, and Savior.